Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. She's making me put this really phallic object right by my mouth, and it's really uncomfortable for me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only on my first margarita. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Andrea Hazenbank. And this week we're bringing you a very special mini-sode inspired primarily by Andrea, aka Proletarian Arts, belligerent tweets. <laughs> Back on May 17th, when we posted episode 13B, that's the second part of our discussion of the seventh book, Andrea responded to our discussion of the pamphlets and propaganda circulated by the Ministry of Magic. She brought up anonymity, craft production versus modernity, and something called Mosley's black shirts. I'm sitting down with her today to give her the chance to school us all about print culture and propaganda, and because she promised to make me margaritas, which she did. Let's start by talking in general about the function of propaganda throughout the Harry Potter series. We were chatting before this and you pointed out that this is a theme that you see not just sort of suddenly emerging in the seventh book with Voldemort coming into power, but actually sort of building across the entire series. Yeah, so it's more or less an issue where you kind of see different kinds of texts are being represented constantly. You and Marcel and Neil have talked really quite a lot about different kinds of reading, different kinds of text, different kinds of printing, all these sorts of things. So we've got these texts being really heavily foregrounded throughout the series, but it moves from what kind of text we get. We kind of move from a really fantastical world and a really childlike story into something more interested in the politics and power of the world around it. So the books we see move from very sort of... um, fun narratives something a little more interested in like school books this sort of thing Hogwarts of history is one of the first things that comes up the day-to-day life of the wizarding world as we're getting introduced to it we start seeing the daily profit we start seeing sort of ordinary communication in the wizarding world then as we move into the middle section we start getting interested in celebrity culture a little bit so this is where we start seeing um, the quibbler we start seeing tabloid writing Um, We start seeing something like Love Goods tabloid, weekly world news version of things. Mm -hmm. So we start getting this sort of straightforward questioning of information happening really early. And then as we move into sort of the latter third of the series, so I'm really thinking from book five, six, and into seven, is where we get a much broader appreciation of the politics of the wizarding world and what's at stake, not just for Harry, but what it means to be the chosen one in a world set up like this. And so propaganda becomes an incredibly important part of that. So as readers, we're already trained to see how different texts are impacting the lives of the characters, how they're reading different texts. And when we get to the later parts of the series, we're finally being brought into what it means to be a critical reader when everything is being used to lie to you. How do you resist that? We've talked a couple of times about primarily Hermione's evolution as a critical reader, because she seems to be the first one to really get it, right? Sort of the first example of beginning to be suspicious of how texts work is Hermione realizing that Hogwarts, a history, um, has deliberate omissions in it, that it doesn't talk about the house elves, and that she starts to realize that history is a narrative, and that's a narrative that is structured around particular politicized exclusions. But yeah, when you start to tie these things together... In book two, uh, we get the introduction of Lockhart and the sort of need to be suspicious around the divide between 
you know, the stories he has published. And, and mm-hmm. then in book three, we get the introduction of sort of Sirius and the propaganda about him. Um, in book four, it's Harry's recognition of how he's being misrepresented by the press. Mm-hmm. And it does indeed sort of escalate. And I think that you're right to say that it's not so much that we're tracking any particular character's education in how to read, but in fact that we as readers are being taught how to read suspiciously Mm -hmm. along the way, um, which does tie in in interesting ways with the ongoing limitations of Harry's own perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting, too, because, you know, we read this as adults and scholars. But if Mm -hmm. you think about this as an actual child audience reading to a young adulthood, that's kind of an, a useful way to think about what become texts that are decipherable at different points in your life. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're a tween, sort of pre-teen age, you're, you're getting to understand how reading works. And you're pretty comfortable with your school reading and questioning that. You're maybe starting to read the news, that sort of things. And then you move into sort of your mid-teens and you start questioning things about celebrity culture and what the media sells you about ideals and sort of self-image and things like that. And then... I would argue by the time you're in your late teens, you're approaching adulthood, you become more interested in the world around you and the politics of the world mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So I think as the characters develop, as the intended audience develops, the levels of reading that are appropriate for them, not just in Rowling's books themselves, but in the intertextual books that they're referencing become important too. Yeah, we see propaganda being closely affiliated in the final two books, particularly the last book with Voldemort and his rights to power, or, you know, in the fifth book with Umbridge. Um, But when we track it backwards like this, it becomes clear that propaganda is not simply a function of a fascist government, but that, in fact, public texts always have a propagandistic element to them and that your responsibility as a mature person is to be constantly reading all of the texts around you suspicious to their political motives. Always be afraid. (laughs) But tracking it back to what we mean when we talk about propaganda is that question. So propaganda, when it was first introduced, um, did not have the pejorative or sort of sinister meaning that we ascribe to it now. We give it that meaning now because we live through the 20th century when propaganda sort of rose to a whole new level of power and um, was sort of an institutionalized tool of fascist regimes, totalitarian regimes. Before that, propaganda was sort of a thing that propagated in the way that print propagated. So propaganda was simply a thing that could be reproduced and circulated. That is super interesting because then propaganda just becomes almost synonymous with print itself. Exactly. So in its early form, the idea of propaganda shows up around the time that print shows up, which is conveniently in England around the time where we start seeing splintering of religious orders, greater influence of um, secular power, and spread of literacy, all of these different things. So they all happen the same moment. The English tradition of propaganda arguably goes back to about the Civil War era. Mm -hmm. So you've got mm, around 16, late 40s into around 1651, where you've got Cromwell rising up to power, deposing the monarch, slaughtering the monarch, and taking over. And so in this period is where you really get um, the flourishing of a British press in a way that hadn't happened before. So the earliest collections of British propaganda stem from this period. So it's no coincidence that when you start tracing it from that war, civil war, where you start tracing it up to a French Revolution, mm-hmm. civil war, where you start tracing it up to, you know, all these different periods where you've got insurgents and coups and these sorts of things happening, propaganda comes in. So let's talk more about modernity and propaganda. So in one of your tweets, you mentioned that one of the sort of primary characteristics of early pamphlet culture was its anonymity. And yet when we think about modernity and the rise of print culture, one of the things that we think about is the sort of rise of discourses of individualism and emphasis on on authorship as individual creation. So can you sort of talk through that history from sort of the pamphlet as an anonymous text through to modernity's obsession with authorship? Absolutely. <laughs> I thought asked. you'd never ask. In fact, this entire exercise is all about how to badger people with your pedantry to make them come to your house and record <laughs> you talking. Pamphlet culture is the greatest thing that ever was. Everyone should read pamphlets. Everyone should write pamphlets. 
I'll send you some of mine if you wish to subscribe to my newsletter. <laughs> so pamphlet culture is intimately tied to print culture. It emerges at the same time. But it's sort of like the um, grody little cast off of print culture. So whereas, you know, you think of the Gutenberg Bible, you think of these great, beautiful projects of um, enormous works of importance. You think of, you know, the first folios, all of these things. These run off of the backs of cheap print and pamphlet print and other circulatory things. So the um, great flourishing works of print culture go hand in hand with crappy pamphlets and shitty chapbooks and mm -hmm. things that you print about VD and forms and tax things and business things and things that nobody cares about and ultimately get destroyed until I go rooting through basements and find them. In order to print a book, you need to stockpile a huge amount of paper. You need to invest a lot of money in this object and hope that it sells. Um, and that is really hard to do, especially if you haven't built up a reading public mm -hmm. that will support that. So pamphlets and books are not so much opposites as like pamphlets make books possible. Absolutely. Very much so in early printing, especially, you want your presses to be running virtually 24 hours a day. You want to be running all the time. Mm -hmm. And when you're not printing a big book, you can run off these smaller little projects on the side, whereas sort of the jobbing print can offset the cost of the big thing. The point being, um, it's super weird to me that a world that doesn't appear to use printing and instead has quills that just make everything appear automatically is so deeply indebted to the cycles of print culture. Mm -hmm. That is a little bit bananas okay. to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me more about anonymity versus individualism. Why is it so important that pamphlets are anonymous? Well, pamphlets are super dangerous. <gasps> I'm going to distinguish pamphlets and propaganda a little bit here. So I think of pamphlets sort of as the form. Mm -hmm. It's a polemical form. It's putting things out. Propaganda, I think, is a lot more um, sloganistic, a lot more to the point, and is a lot more related to the state. Mm -hmm. But pamphlets, because they're presenting like a very um, argumentative, often dangerous point of view, you super don't want to have your name on that in a lot of times. And if it's emerging in these moments of strife, to have your name attached to that when you don't know which way the chips are going to fall is mm -hmm. just disastrous. But like we were talking about, okay, the great thing about a printing press is it does enable mass anonymous reproduction. You can print off a bunch of things. Nobody knows where it came from. I mean, we can figure it out a little bit now. <laughs> Turns out materiality is not as anonymous as you think, but that's for uh, graduate level nerds. <laughs> the point being, printing is pretty anonymous. It's not like you're handwriting out your bills and stapling yeah. them up. But in the wizarding world, Every piece of magic is so intensely individual. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen scene after scene in the Harry Potter books where magic can be traced back to its wand of origin. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is crazy. So I wonder, is there such a thing as like a, a non-personed wand? Are there workshops where there are just series of wands that don't belong to anyone going off? They're company wands. Mm -hmm. Or does it have to be the person who is doing this magic, does it bear their stamp? So if there are these pamphlets getting produced, if there are these sort of um, missives being sent, any skilled wizard could figure out where they came from. And so that collapse of the possibility of anonymity is um, super interesting to me, and I would argue um, super dangerous for people in the wizarding world. Yeah. I mean, we have very few examples of anonymous propaganda in the wizarding world. Our good pamphleteer is Xenophilius Lovegood mm -hmm. and he is you know he is the opposite of anonymous he is like a celebrity kook yeah. you know I'm thinking about you know when you said every piece of magic can be traced back to its wand and I was thinking about how you know people who work on early print culture do just absolutely amazing work the study of bibliography is all about close reading the materiality of a text to trace it back to its place of origin and you can a combination of attention to um, paper quality paper size folding watermarks binding methods means that you know people can trace exactly where a book was printed and bound oh my god isn't it the greatest thing it's very exciting bibliography is a very exciting we field can map it so like yeah. And not just where it came from, but who owned it and read it and where it was sold. So early print culture is actually all about traceability because these early forms of sort of craftsmanship 
it's not machine reproduction. Um, we don't see machine reproduction in the wizarding world. We see uh, craftsmanship and individuality. And the wand is this real trope of the craftsman, of the sort of individual mark on anything that you do. So it does seem to sort of freeze print culture in a particular historical moment that like the wizarding world that jk rowling has produced is obsessed with print but it's not obsessed with 20th century print it's obsessed with like early print 18th century print so we talked you and i and marcel before about like where is this wizarding world supposed to be Mm -hmm. on a historical spectrum and Fuck if I know. Because everything that I think we can pin down gets subverted in the next book, which I love. It's a series so interested in its own history and the history of this place and this world, but also is so unwilling to sort of pin itself down to one place or another. But certainly, I would say in its production techniques, you know, we're talking industrial revolution. We're talking water mills and shit like that. We're not not in sweatshops. Um, We're certainly using slave labor in different places we're not in a fully modern technocratic society Mm -hmm. unless you go inside the ministry the ministry of magic Mm -hmm. is the most beautiful british technocratic wet dream that you have ever (laughs) seen in your life british technocratic wet dream is the phrase that i never knew i always wanted to hear i mean the ministry is not kafka-esque no we're not Kafka's bureaucracy. We're not Bartleby's bureaucracy. We're Monty Python's bureaucracy. (laughs) You know, the Ministry of Magic is all wall-to-wall Ministry of Silly Walks. And I love it! (laughs) Okay, I need you to unpack that for me a little bit more because what is the Ministry of Silly Walks making fun of that the Ministry of Magic is also getting at? What in British bureaucracy is being evoked here? I think Canadian bureaucracy has a lot more in common with this too. I mean, it's where we got our bureaucracy. <laughs> yes, it's the er form of bureaucracy. But the Minister of Silly Walks really gets at the set for it is the first thing I think about. It's this drab, it's browns, it's not fantastical. It's not the sort of like gray, brutal, um, concrete facade that you might imagine for Kafka. Um, Neil was talking about brutalism quite a lot in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Brutalism is what you associate with sort of a Soviet totalitarian bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. A British and, by extension, Canadian bureaucracy is a dowdy office somewhere where a singular person is kind of plugging away at something unfathomable and something ultimately not of great import. I'm sorry, I never, I never noticed any of this, but all of the images of the Ministry of Magic, the fact that one of the entrances is through a seemingly out-of-business old department store with, like, shitty dress dummies in the front. Um, you can also get in through a phone booth or flushing yourself down a toilet. Like, everything about the Ministry of Magic is banal and depressing and... I would say it's mundane to the point of absurd, which really kind of makes it fun. You know, the stakes are not high. In this bureaucracy. And really, until the influx of Umbridge and then Voldemort and sort of the later books, you get the feeling that the Ministry of Magic is pretty chill. You know, you've got Arthur Weasley like mucking around with cars and doing some interesting things. Good work is being done, the ship is being sailed, but the stakes are not very high. So I like to imagine the Ministry of Magic as having a department where people are just like, I have this spell I really want to work out. Or like, I'm really concerned about how I can keep my magical creature, you know, free of mad cow disease or something like that. And it's just this sort of like things that in a secure democratic society you can devote attention to. That when the politics become so much more essentialist and frightening that suddenly fall by the wayside and suddenly um Arthur Weasley's not tweaking around with children's games and electrical radios and things like that anymore he's really concerned about protecting the muggle people with whom he interacts it's interesting because so I'm I'm paralleling two things in my head right now and one is that the rise of fascism in the Harry Potter books is seen as a increase in security, an increase in bureaucracy to the point of a chokehold on people. All of these 
pre-existing systems suddenly can be tightened and increased you know the mark that's put on wizards to just make sure underage wizards don't do anything you know inappropriate all of a sudden becomes this sort of you know Foucauldian panoptic way of monitoring the behavior of the most radicalized population which is always the youth population but then and I mean um, with apologies to our currently thoroughly disillusioned British listeners we need to talk about Brexit if we're talking about British fascism oh my god we're going to talk about British fascism <laughs> yeah. for a while now. But the, one of the discourses that the pro-Leave campaign was using was that the EU is too bureaucratic. And they kept talking about the excessive number of regulations. Just help me parse that, that difference between the way that the pro-Leave campaign was using the same images of fascism as an excess of bureaucracy mm-hmm. that Harry Potter uses to justify their own ultimately fascist desires. Yeah, I mean, it's just a question of the current face of idiotic fascism in Britain is sort of forgetting its own history. I mean, the British invented queuing. They invented the form. The British form of colonial rule is bureaucratic through and through and uses that as a technology of power and control. The other great form makers of the world are the German people who are super great at forms and organizing and IBM punch cards and various things. Mm -hmm. And the way these are linked is the fact that fascism is so ultra modern in its approach to things. It has scientific aspirations, scientific, huge air quotes around that. But in the sense it's systematic. It's systematic in a way that other earlier forms of authoritarian rule aren't. It's equally cruel, but it's not capricious. It's cruel in its blanket application of rules. Yeah, and I mean, that that is one of the things that make fascism and capitalism such very good friends, is that for any of you who have ever worked for a corporation, you will remember this experience, right? Rules for rules' own sake. <laughs> It's, you know, it's it's regulation of the body, regulation of behavior, regulation of space, because regulation is understood as itself an inherent good, and rules don't need to have internal logic. They justify themselves via the application of order. Absolutely. Like, fascism and corporate organization is all about de-individualizing things. It's all about dealing with the mass and constructing systems to manage the mass. Mm -hmm. Our visions for what fascist governments have been in the 20th century tend to have very singular leaders and very sort of robust systems of control. Pre-modern forms of authoritarianism are intensely personal. It is one personal monarch's personal desire to do something horrific and individual to you. This idea, and you mentioned Foucault, but you know, the idea that every crime has a very specific breakdown of how many lashes and where it's happening and who's looking at you. That kind of turns the person, the individual body into an emblem, but certainly doesn't erase it. Mm -hmm. Whereas fascist crime and horror and punishment and management is all about erasing a person. You are not a person, you are a number. You are not a number. You are part of a mass body. Mm -hmm. And I think the wizarding world is showing us this. We move from increasingly individualized forms of things into this mass. And I think that's actually kind of in contrast to what we see with how the wizarding world works. This is another place where I find a real conflict between the pre-modern and the modern in the way Rowling's built up her world. Because fascism is so ultra-modern. And the wizarding world is so sort of like nostalgically pastoral in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and I mean fascism uses that language in a lot of ways if you look at um, World War II era uh, Nazi propaganda it's awful it's banal it's terrible but it's looking towards this sort of like beautiful fatherland image this Mm -hmm. idealized place that never was Mm -hmm. in service of its ultra modern aims Mm -hmm. so it's sort of playing fast and loose with it both ways Whereas the Wizarding World doesn't seem to have a huge amount of interest in its own history, nor does it seem to have a lot of interest in being future-oriented. 
I mean, the the discourse of Voldemort's rule is about a return to origins. He very much positions it as we once ruled over the muggles and we gave up our power. This ministry forced us to give up our power. We are going to reclaim our power. Um, it is that sort of, you know, a hearkening back to the age of purity. Make to the... wizarding great again. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It is make wizarding great again. Um, make wizards great again. And, you know, this is always the, the secret second clause of these statements. You know, make America great again. Make Britain free again is... These are the people who are stopping us from that, yeah. right? So make wizarding great again. That means crush muggles underneath us. Mm -hmm. So I do think, you know, we might not see aesthetically the pastoralism. No, pause there because that's elided from the movies because the films really, really want to visually contrast the sort of sepia, nostalgic, mm -hmm. pre-modern wizarding world of the borough and of Hogwarts with the fascistic Soviet brutalist gray world of um, Voldemort. But this, in the seventh book, the anti-Muggle ministry pamphlet has a rose on it. So that's a really different discourse. Oh, my God. First of all, you did not just equate fascism and Soviet brutalism. <gasps> no. Sorry. But that, I mean, but that's the visual vocabulary the films are using. Absolutely. No. Yeah. And the yeah. films are conflating the two, which. <laughs> <sighs> Sorry. We learned from the last episode that we need to be more cautious about distinguishing between naming the discourses that the films and books are using and simplistically claiming those discourses to be truth so like yes that is an important space to be like the films are simplistically equating soviet brutalism with fascism in a way that is ahistorical but that is but that is their vocabulary make no mistake everyone is terrible but like the way the soviets are terrible is ideologically different than the way the fascists are terrible it just sort of appears the same when you move to extremes on the either end mm -hmm. Um, and the film is certainly playing with extremes in a lot of ways. In the same way, it's sort of um, really a pastiche of history. It's sort of a pastiche of 20th century politics in the same way. So I forgive the movie and I'll forgive you this <laughs> time. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I was interested in the conversation you guys were having in book seven about where Ron and Harry and Hermione are sort of investigating there are no people. They're out in the woods. They're out in these small villages. They're out away from the rest. And to me, that's an interesting divide is sort of the populated versus the unpopulated. And I do think a lot of these discourses play into that. We get into these sort of like origins as something emptied out something essential where there are no people where there hasn't gone wrong yet and I know partly it's to kind of show the isolation that these characters are feeling from the drama that is happening at Hogwarts and everywhere else in the wizarding world but it is also kind of showing a place where they are getting to be the best wizards they can be because there's no one else around mm. there are no muggles around they're out in the countryside just wizarding all over the place and wouldn't it be great if every wizard could do that yeah, which brings us back to, you know, the way that the films, even while arguing against certain forms of fascism, also reinforce other forms. And that's, you know, I was having a conversation about the endless flexibility of white supremacy and how if you want to be on guard against white supremacy, you need to pay attention to how it constantly reshapes itself in different contexts and different histories um, it's slippery, like so many forms of insidious power, it's slippery. And fascism is slippery, right? And so if we let ourselves get too distracted by the really obvious forms, then we're going to miss the ways that it's sort of infiltrating our day-to-day -day lives. You gestured towards that in the way that like uh, the sort of pro-leave Brexit supporters, and I get that not all pro-leave people 
are fascists. No, there's a super strong case on the left for leave as well because it's sort of reputing this idea of global capitalism, this sort of like beautiful utopia, free open borders and fucking bullshit like this where you can offload jobs and people all over the place without regard for, you know, laws and Mm -hmm. human lives or anything like that. There's a super strong case on the left for leave, but I don't feel like that's where the vote came from. No, no. And that's not who the most outspoken supporters have been. But that, you know, even if it looks different from what you were used to thinking of fascism as, it's like, don't, don't let that distract you. But I think that also gets us at the way that one of the things that the Harry Potter series shows us, maybe not intentionally, but that is certainly there in the texts, is that the seed of fascism lies in that charmingly banal bureaucratic ministry. Yes, you've got it. I think the wizarding world is going to have another fascist leader because they keep coming once a generation, another one, another one, because they can put down what they're perceiving as a singular evil. It's sort of like, if you go back in time and defeat Hitler, this will never happen. Mm -hmm. That's not paying attention to the system, the historical causes, the economic issues rising on this, and the fucking structure that's there. Mm -hmm. The Ministry of Magic, you get one off minister. And suddenly, you know, you're throwing down the banners and you're having a crystal knock. Like, that's what happens. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the whole sort of go back and shoot Hitler school of thought is like, okay. But why are we not going back and shooting the signers of the Treaty of Versailles? (laughs) Because if you go back, then who are you? Who are you shooting before that? Even the fantasy of shooting Hitler is about the same sort of nostalgic a historical drive which is like if we could just go back far enough we would reach a time when things were perfect and restore that perfection and that has never been and will never be that's not how history works and I would say that there's something really troubling about the restoration of the original in the epilogue of book seven Mm -hmm. because it is about a fantasy of restoration of the way exactly the way that society worked pre Voldemort and to restore society the way it was pre Voldemort is to reinstate all of the conditions that made Voldemort possible. You reinstate the society before Voldemort. You're just reinstating the society that happened right after Grindelwald. So here's a question I was going to pose to you. Who is the next Voldemort? I just started thinking about that um, as I was like, okay, so it was Grindelwald. And, you know, we see Grindelwald rising up. We see him making the same sorts of arguments about the need for wizards to manage muggles, you know, for the greater good. Grindelwald's discourse of might makes right, power equals the necessity to rule. We um, can argue, first of all, that Grindelwald is perhaps not a British fascist. Like, no. he's given an extremely Germanic name. And like, also, he he's his fortress is called, like, Nuremberg. It's not. It's called, like, Nuremberg or something. <laughs> Nuremberg. It's called something very close to Nuremberg. Like, we can agree that he yeah. went to wherever the school crumb went to. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, he, he did. He did, for sure. He is the German fascist. But... The fact of the matter is that Dumbledore's attraction to Grindelwald is a sign for us of the fact that pre-Voldemort, fascism had its appeal to British wizards. All right. And and then Voldemort appears and the seeds for that same kind of fascism are right there in the British wizarding population. So, you know, the question here is who is going to be our next... Voldemort, I would say Draco Malfoy's son. I have been laughing my ass off to myself privately this week because one of the current people rising on the British far right is named Crab. (gasps) If you are a child of not one of the adult Death Eaters, but one of the children of Death Eaters, you know, and your grandfather might have been evil, but we all know how easy it is to glorify the things that our grandparents did and to justify 
what seemed like monstrosity in the moment from a distance. You know, many of us have World War II era grandparents who did pretty horrific things in the war, but if you came out on the right side of the war, then it, they're heroes. Yeah. Um, I've got grandparents who came out on the wrong side of the war. Yeah. We emigrated to Canada after World War II for reasons. Yeah, so, you know, that's... Uh, you are perfectly situated to be the next Voldemort, right? Like, you you get that sort of sympathy that comes with distance, but also, th- I mean, it's is it Crab who dies in the... It is fire? Crab yeah. So that's why the modern British crab. Yeah. It's a false flag, but still. But that, you know, to think like my father died pointlessly in this war and you know, like I I can see it being Crab's son, except Crab doesn't have a son. What about Teddy Lupin? Could be Teddy Lupin. I mean, he's got all of that sort of identity issue with um the werewolfism and things Mm -hmm. like they're there the point is they're there and it's going to come up again because they've not changed anything they're all Mm -hmm. fucking going off to the same system they still work in the same system Mm -hmm. but i don't know wizarding world seems to be doomed to eternally repeat itself Mm -hmm. okay let's go back to that conversation we sort of started on about British fascism and its perceived toothlessness. I want to allude to a series of tweets from Fang Melly, who is a really, really wonderful Twitter feminist. You should all go follow. And she was tweeting about how Britain's perceived humaneness is, you know, deeply ahistorical and a sort of, you know, a political and discursive trick that is causing a huge number of us, particularly in North America, to forget that Britain once ruled most of the world in a shockingly brutal way. Yeah, I really have been wondering, when did we all decide that the Brits were just, like, silly and fun? Like, I mean, when the post-World War II Brits convinced us all really effectively through various forms of cultural production that they were all really silly and fun. Yeah. I mean, George Orwell is having none of this. No. George Orwell knows. And <laughs> 1984, you guys, Animal Farm propaganda is dealt with in a serious big way. And I think those are good analogs for a lot of these stories. Like Rowling is working not just within a specific historical moment and tradition, but within a really strong English literary tradition of exposing and dealing with these things. So, mm-hmm. you know, she knows what she's doing, but... It's so interesting the way British fascism has been elided. Well, I mean, it's really, it's interesting to me because I think in Canada, we are invested in promoting the sort of Britain, Britain has always been cute and harmless because if Britain has always been cute and harmless, then we can support our own narratives of also being cute and harmless. If colonialism was a brutal seizing of power and exploitation, then we have to acknowledge that Canada is founded on a history of violence. But I think there's a different reason in the U.S. This is purely theory. But I think that the U.S. imagines itself as the inheritor of Britain's power and so is invested in justifying imperialism rather than erasing imperialism which is what we want to do in canada british fascism is real because (laughs) british colonialism was serious brutal and Mm all-encompassing it was more extensive than any empire the world has ever known and british fascism was an attempt to tap into the nostalgic image of that power Mm -hmm. and reassert it so what moment are we talking about in terms of british fascism I am talking about the black shirts, finally. The long-promised black shirts. So, um, Britain had a fascist party in the early 1930s. The British Union of Fascists was founded by Oswald Mosley, who was first legitimately elected as a conservative MP. Never vote conservative. They're all secretly fascist. (laughs) You didn't hear it here. You've never heard it here. 
from 1931 through 36, they were actually really active, and they sort of declined after that because the real fascists sort of showed up. But there was a really strong presence in Britain on this issue. And I mean, like, the king at the time, Edward VIII, had certain affinities with this issue. And Britain's really uncomfortable with this period. I mean, this is a super, super sidebar, but... Um, the, a lot of the reason why the 1930s doesn't get written about, especially from an English perspective, is there's a lot of uncomfortable fascism in the middle of that. Uh, if anybody is interested in a novel that talks exactly about this period and about um, aristocratic British people's complicity with the rise of fascism in Europe, you should read uh, Ishiguro's novel Remains of the Day, which is a really, really stunning representation of the rise of fascism. But this is exactly what... Harry's revelation about Dumbledore is about, right? It's, it is a youth during Thatcherite Britain coming to the shocking revelation that this is not the first time that the UK has dabbled in fascism, that in fact, at the very historical moment when supposedly the UK was representing right thinking and a refusal of these forms of power, it was in fact being actively seduced by the same sorts of fantasies. Yes, absolutely. Everyone loves to talk about World War II. No one wants to talk about 1936 through 1938. This is, you know, I think when we are when we are looking at the representation of power in history in the Harry Potter series, you know, one of the things that we are being encouraged to do as readers of this series is discover along with Harry that our heroes of the past were also complicit in exactly the same problems that we are recognizing in the present and that it is our responsibility. I mean, this is what book seven shows us. It's our responsibility, not just to critically read our present, but also to critically read our past and to understand how the past led to the present. Because if we don't understand history, it will repeat itself. Um, and that's a really, really important lesson about how history works in these books that ironically the book itself doesn't seem to get in the end mm -hmm. because, you know, we talked about this already, but in that final scene, the joke about don't end up with a pure blood because your grandfather will be mad at you really reinforces that like, you know, hit, nothing has changed. And that's exactly the issue I have with the end of this is we see the destruction of Grindelwald, we see the destruction of Dumbledore, we see the destruction of Voldemort. Mm -hmm. So many three-syllable names. But the system is still the same. It's setting us up for another. And, like, I don't think that's meant to be the ultimate satire. I think that's the limit of the critique. I mean, it's so often the limit of critique when we when we want to critique a system but we don't want radical change right we hit the limits of our critique when we understand the system as something that um i'm paraphrasing here a recent interview i did with virgie tovar that if we think about the system as something that just needs tweaking then we are forever going to function within the system as opposed to if we think of the system as something that needs burning down <laughs> precisely the words I was going to use. Yeah! <sighs> the problem is the reality of burning down a system is so much more than sort of the gestural extent you want to do with that. And that's hard to deal with. That's a very difficult thing. And I get that Rowling was like, Presenting the image of if good people continue to hold to good things, we can improve things. But like I said, there's another dark wizard on the rise and this one will know about the Internet. Yeah. So speaking of the limits of the critique, I think that this also reminds us, you know, people have been alarmed by Rowling's Magic in North America series, mm -hmm. but... A romantic treatment of British history, which is what we see in part in the Harry Potter series, is also going to, to some degree, involve a justification of colonialism. And the Magic of North America series is all about a romantic British justification of colonialism. Um, and we see that and we, we rebel. Many of us rebel. But I think it's also incumbent on us to then look back at the series and ask ourselves, where were the seeds for that all along? 
in this series? You know, where, how has that logic um, of those with wands versus those without a sort of separate but equal logic of, um, you know, the, the, the magic is good. And so the expansion of magic in the form of the expansion of British culture is also good. Like where are those forms of logic just embedded in the series in a way back to that, that slipperiness of power, you know, it's the kinds that we don't notice that are often the most insidiously dangerous. We can't ever divorce British fascism from colonialism and the deep irony that a series that is fundamentally critical of British fascism is promoting British colonialism, you know, refusing British fascism with one hand and promoting British colonialism with the other. That is, that's an irony that we need to keep in mind. If you're if your temptation is to say, I love the original series, and so I'm going to ignore this magic in North America shit, that's a dangerous temptation. No, it's all there. It's all there. So a thing I'm going to point to, a year I'm going to point to, 1689. This is the year in the Harry Potter series where we have the International Statute of Secrecy. This is also the year in England where we have the Glorious Revolution with the installation of William and Mary that makes Parliament supreme. So this is very close to the years where we have the Salem Witch Trials in North America. So this is very close to the years where we have acts of settlement in Canada asserting British dominance over the French. So a lot of what Rowling is depicting turns at a certain period. And it's a period that is entering into modernity, is dealing with politics in a very modern sort of way, um, is the ascension of parliament over the monarch which is incredibly important when we talk about the influence of the ministry of magic the point at which the wizarding world separates from the muggle world which is what happens in the um, international wizarding statute of secrecy this is where we have wizards being apart from non-wizarding people this is arguably a moment where modernity intercedes so we define modernity in a lot of ways, but one of them is where we start having reason separated from superstition. So where arguably the muggle world leans on reason and science, the wizarding world leads on superstition and magic. This is also the moment where colonialism takes off in the biggest way. Wizards came over to North America in equal part, they participated in colonialism in equal part. They were involved in the rise of this new North American society in equal part. So in that very moment where we supposedly have the differentiation between these two societies, we have them participating equally in the same political forms that mark the rise of modernity, which is to say the rise of bureaucracy and the rise of colonialism. Yes, beautiful. So... Rowling's stories want us to believe that the wizards have separated themselves from all of this. But perhaps the later additions to the canon are telling us, no, they're right there. And what does it mean if British wizards are part of a colonial effort? Like, they're acting as white British subjects, not necessarily as wizards. So I've been really interested in that separation because I've never found it convincing that they were separate from that. You've written down two really key dates here. You've noted 1689 is this key, interesting historical moment that helps us understand, as we've already talked about, the link between the wizarding world and modernity and the wizarding world and colonialism. So talk us through this next date that you've written down. I also wrote down 1938, which I think is incredibly important when we're talking about fascism and British history. So 1938 is the transition from politics of the depression into politics about fascism in a big way. So this is where we see sort of the tail end of the Spanish Civil War and the rising line of Adolf Hitler, um, Mussolini, Oswald Mosley, and other Western fascists who sort of infiltrated into what were ostensibly democratic processes. Mm -hmm. So... This is the black shirts you've been waiting for. So 1938 is really marked in England by the appeasement crisis, where we see 
the British Prime Minister trying to deal with Adolf Hitler and his invasion of Czechoslovakia, his sort of expansionist rhetoric. This was the warning sign. And historically, we look at the appeasement crisis as the chance that the West had to shut down World War II, that it failed at. But this is the same year we also have really the rise of the Third Reich in a way we didn't see before. So 1938 is the same year we see the Nuremberg rallies and the Nuremberg laws that set out the exclusion of Jewish people from German society on a very explicitly racial basis. This is the same year we see Kristallnacht, where we see German fascists busting up Jewish properties, homes, stores, all sorts of things. And I think this is a really important thing to think about when we're looking at these books, especially books six and seven in the um, Harry Potter world, where we see the resurgence of the dark wizards who are acting against muggles in a really direct sort of way. So it's no longer just sort of slurs and classifications. It's a really direct action. We see people being seized, people being transported, people being sort of made examples of. It's a lie of history to pretend that no one knew what was happening Mm. within the Third Reich. That no one knew about the final solution, sure. But there was no question about what was happening legally, what was happening politically in the country. This reminds me of a lot of tweets I've seen in the past few days in the wake of Brexit with people of color saying, like, hey, white people, you're surprised that a white supremacist, fundamentally xenophobic party just took the vote? It doesn't surprise any of us because people of color living in the UK have known that racism and white supremacy is rampant all along. Like pretending that forms of violence aren't happening is itself a privilege. Absolutely. And kind of one of the calling cards of 20th century fascism is it's not extra legal. It uses the existing legal channels and sort of exploits that latent white supremacist factor to its own advantage. So, and I think you see that happening with Voldemort's rise. Like, he's not doing anything illegal. That's what Umbridge is all about, right? Umbridge is all about being sanctioned by the existing ministry, being able to operate within existing rules and to extend existing forms of power to do something absolutely monstrous that's that's in the service of evil. Yeah, absolutely. And that's hard to face up to. That evil can be sanctioned, that the monstrous can be a natural extension from what already exists. It's only hard to deal with if you are already served by the existing forms of power. If what already exists has already been fundamentally oppressive to you, then it is absolutely unsurprising when it extends from forms of sort of pervasive and banal oppression into forms of overt oppression. Okay, so you've been walking us through the history of um, the rise of fascism in the UK. Um, I would like you to tell me about the flag of the fascist party. (gasps) All right. So when we were talking, like my initial series of tweets were very explicit. I'm like, fascism, 1938, Mosley. So the reason why Mosley's British Union of Fascists is super interesting in relation to Harry Potter's world is the flag of the British Union of Fascists is a fucking lightning bolt. This absolutely blows my mind. Like, Andrew just told me this, and I was like, (gasps) I would not make the claim that that is an illusion that Rowling is making, but I would make the claim that the iconography of the lightning bolt ties into Harry Potter in a way that I think we could connect, right? Images of um, modernity, lightning bolts are associated with power, they're associated with rule, right? The kings of the gods are always the gods of lightning. Like, what is happening here that makes lightning both a kind of comfortable marker of white masculine heroism on Harry Potter's forehead that also makes it rhetorically appealing to British fascists. 
I love a loaded question. <laughs> First of all, we can agree that we don't fucking care what the author thought. We can read whatever we want into it. Yay. I was... I was doing research, which is extremely out of character for this podcast, but I was doing research on um, Oswald Mosley's British Union Fascists, and I saw the flag, and I threw my hands up and said, I can't, I can't even. The lightning bolt is, it is really emphasizing power. It's really emphasizing modern power in a way that other symbols don't. It's not a dragon. It's not a fucking wand shooting off sparks in the sky. It's... A lightning bolt. Let's use the lightning bolt as a way of bringing our conversation full circle and coming back to the reading of propaganda and propaganda as a technology. <sighs> that thing we started with. Yeah, yeah, that thing we started with when we were purportedly making a mini-sode about, about print culture. Because I think the lightning bolt is a reminder to us of the readability of signs. And we've talked about the difference between signs and their significations in this podcast before about the way that ideology wants us to collapse together the sign and its meaning but critique of ideology allows us to prize those apart and remember that signs don't inherently mean anything and the lightning bolt is a sign that has meant a lot of different things at a lot of different times and this series as a whole The lightning bolt is one of many texts that we are encouraged to think and rethink about its readability. The lightning bolt signifies the second Harry gets to Hogwarts. The lightning bolt becomes a sign of his specialness. The lightning bolt later becomes a sign of him being the chosen one. And ultimately it becomes for him a sign of being doomed. That realization that his specialness actually means he needs to die. And so the the significance of the lightning bolt shifts in a way that aligns with how the series as a whole is about teaching us to read critically and teaching us to think about how the texts around us, every text around us, constantly needs to be submitted to the same kinds of critical reading. So that makes the particular conjunction in the Harry Potter series of our Um, limited narrative perspective plus the widespread use of propaganda in the wizarding world leads to a really interesting sort of narrative situation, right? Which is that we are reading through the eyes of one particular reader Mm -hmm. and some forms of propaganda are obvious to him as propaganda from the get-go. And those are usually the ones that are misrepresenting him. And he knows that they're lies because he knows what his own story is. But there are other forms that he doesn't recognize as readily because he doesn't have the distance or he doesn't have the critical reading apparatus yet. And if we think about the way that we, through Harry's eyes, get to learn how to be critical readers, in fact, the series is reminding mm-hmm. us that like there are some forms of propaganda we will recognize right away, and there are some that we're really going to have to work to identify. And those will be different for everybody, but it's work we all have to do. Absolutely. And I mean, like, the series really, you know, aligns us with Harry. But what if we were Dean Thomas? What if we were Luna? Like, what are we seeing from these other print pieces? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most interesting part is that so much of what we see in the Harry Potter series is things directed towards Harry. Like, what else is happening? Like, Mm, what else is happening what else is the Ministry of Magic putting out regarding muggles? What else is it putting out regarding spells? What else is it putting out regarding other magical creatures? If it doesn't pertain to Harry, we don't see it. I'm really interested to see print culture played such a fundamental role in these movies as well. Um, you know, the eight movie adaptations, they went to a great deal of effort creating a sort of exciting, rich material print world Mm -hmm. like that was obviously a design focus in these movies is making you aware of the materiality of print and really making you think about it in exciting ways that I think I think to some degree my attention to print in the books came via the movies because the movies Mm -hmm. really foregrounded it so much Um, and I'm I'm really curious to see how print is represented in the 1920s in New York Mm -hmm in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. 
because that's a fascinating moment oh God, for media. It's in the 1920s. Oh my God, this is breaking news. <laughs> do, 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 do. Modernism. Uh-huh. But it's, all, it's Art Deco New York. Fuck. <laughs> Thanks so much, witches. <laughs> for putting up with whatever this ends up being. For joining us for episode 16.5 of Witch Please. You can stream the rest of our episodes at ohwitchplease.ca or subscribe on any podcatcher you like. You should probably also go into iTunes and leave us a rating or a review. And don't forget to check out our gorgeous merch at society6.com slash ohwitchplease. It's in the dishwasher. Otherwise, I keep drinking my margarita out of my witch please coffee mug, but... Andrew, you're not supposed to talk through the closing ramble. Then I do whatever I want. Virginia Wolf posted a stylish pic of a witch please mug on Instagram that you should definitely check out. Special thanks, as always, to our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser, and also to everyone hanging out with us on Twitter. Update. Minisodes do not include Twitter lists. I guess you'll have to wait for the next canonical episode. But until then... Later, witches. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.